time and things seem to continue just as they always have. Um, the sun rises, the sun sets, day and night, as it always has. People are born, they grow, they age, they die, just as always. Taxes come around every year, again and again, like they always do. So we live in this flow of sameness of time. It's difficult to sometimes believe or at least live with a lively expectation that one day history is going to come to a grand conclusion. But then we have to remember that things haven't always been like this, right? I mean, the sun hasn't always existed. The universe hasn't always existed. Our world, our species had a beginning, and behind that beginning is God the beginner, the creator. This God promises that one day he is going to bring his creation, this world, to a glorious consummation. So if, if we believe that God is the creator of this world, and it's rational to believe that God is the creator of the world, not only does scripture tell us, but reason says that there has to be a creator behind the universe. I, I came across a quote from an astronomer and a scientist who's not a theist. He doesn't believe in God. But he calculated the odds that the universe could come into existence just through sheer happenstance. And he said the odds of the universe, according to his calculation, the odds of the universe resulting from sheer chance is like flipping a coin into the air 10 to the 15th times power, 10 to the 15th power times, rather, and it comes down on its edge just once. That's the odds of this happening, that the universe was created just sort of randomly by, by chance. So there are good reasons. Not only does God tell us in his word, but it's reasonable to believe that there's a God who created the universe, this world. There's a God who acted to redeem this world by sending his son, Jesus, and that this creator and Redeemer is one, going, one day going to bring about a glorious consummation. History is headed somewhere. The God of history, the God of this universe, is going to bring it to a conclusion. Evil is not going to continue on forever. God is not going to tolerate wickedness and rebellion forever. A day is coming, and the New Testament refers to this as the day of the Lord. And so I want to look primarily at what Paul is saying in our epistle reading about the day of the Lord from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I want us to have a more lively, I want myself to have a more lively expectation that one day I'm going to meet Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to have that for myself. I want us as a congregation to live with that awareness. And this is what Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians. First of all, he describes the day of the Lord, and then he says this is how we ought to live in light of, of the truth of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. So let's look at that. First, the description. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you 
For you yourself are fully aware, verse 2, for you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And, G and, and Paul is echoing what Jesus was just saying in Matthew 24 when he was using this image of a thief in the night to refer to his coming again, the second coming, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ. A thief doesn't send you a text and say, by the way, I plan on coming between 2 and 4 in the morning. A thief comes under the cover of darkness. A thief comes so that he is, is not going to be exposed. Without warning, and Paul says, the day of the Lord is going to be like that. It's going to come suddenly. People aren't going to expect it. And then he uses another image. This passage is full of imagery and metaphor, and he uses another image to talk about the suddenness of the day of the Lord. Verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as, here's the image, labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, I made the mistake in the first service of saying, I've experienced this. <laughs> no. I've not experienced this. I've experienced somebody else experiencing this. <laughs> Labor pains coming upon them. I've witnessed it. That's the better way of saying it. And uh, yes, there are sort of these warm-up contractions that happen, but when it really comes, when the baby is ready, it, it does come. Oftentimes, the baby comes unexpectedly. It seizes the, the woman, and you know that you can't do anything about it. It's going to happen. The baby is is coming. And so that's the sense that Paul is getting. It's going to come unexpectedly, and there's no turning back. There's no escape. So this is the, the first point, the first sort of description of the second coming of Christ that I just want to highlight, what Paul's getting at, what Jesus was getting at in the gospel reading. The day of the Lord comes when people don't expect it. And by the way, that rules out, doesn't it? It rules out completely these these, uh, these schemes and, and folks who think they figured out when the Lord is coming again. Every so often, somebody will come out with a book or a DVD or they'll get some publicity, and they said, I've cracked the code, I figured out when Jesus is going to come back again. It happens over and over again. It happened in 2011. There was a man who had a popular campaign. He spent $100 million, not of his money, but of other people's money, going throughout the country saying, I finally cracked it. I know when the Lord is going to return. And he even said, the Bible guarantees it. He's going to come on this date in 2011. No, the Bible only guarantees that he'll come when we don't know he's coming. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said. Jesus himself says, I don't know the day or the hour concerning that day and our, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if we ever come across somebody making these claims, we just turn off the channel, put the book away, throw the book away, and don't have anything to do with their teaching. Because it's crystal clear that no one is going to know. It will come suddenly, the second coming of Christ. And then he also describes the day of the Lord as a day of destruction. Did you pick that up? Sudden destruction will come upon them. Sudden destruction will come upon them. 
And what the apostle is teaching here and what Jesus teaches all throughout his gospels and the parables of the coming kingdom of God is that for those who are spiritually unprepared, see the point of these passages is to get us prepared, but for those who are spiritually unprepared, for those who refuse to be prepared, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. And that language, destruction, judgment, makes us uncomfortable in this culture, and understandably so. It should make us uncomfortable, this idea that God is coming as a judge. If we have compassion, if we're sensitive towards other people, particularly unbelievers, it should make us uncomfortable, and that should motivate us to want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should motivate us to, to compassionately and sensitively, but clearly share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes warning and hope. And so if we want to be faithful to what the scriptures say, what Jesus himself teaches about this, uh, we can't evade this aspect of the coming of the Lord. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of reckoning for those who are spiritually unprepared. So Jesus is constantly issuing warnings to get ready, to stay awake, to be prepared. He's constantly warning of the dangers of being eternally separated from God. And those warnings come from a place of love and compassion. But my point is, in this culture, that, that language of judgment and destruction is offensive and difficult to, to, to talk about. But if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we have to, to stick with what he teaches here. We can't evade it, and we have to use those, those teachings to motivate us to share the gospel. So the day of the Lord is a day that will come suddenly, and it's a day of judgment. How are we then to live in light of the coming day of the Lord? That's really the motivation here, what Paul is doing here, is to motivate us to live a certain way. And the main idea, of course, is to simply be ready to be prepared. This does not have to come upon us like a thief coming in the night. He says in verse 4, You are not of the darkness, brothers. You don't belong to the darkness. You don't have to be in the dark about this. You belong to the light. You are not of the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You, as believers, know that he's going to come again, and you can be prepared. You can be prepared. You can be prepared. If you know a thief is going to break into your house, if you have reason to believe that a thief is going to break into your house, then you, you can take measures to prepare. You can get an alarm system. You can get extra lighting. You can call the police and ask them to do some patrolling around your house. You can take measures to be prepared. And so Paul is saying, so it is with being ready to meet the Lord. We can prepare. Paul likens this preparation to being awake. Stay awake, he says, and be sober. When you're awake, you're alert. You're aware of what's happening. When you're sober, you're clear-minded. When you're drunk, you're not clear-minded. You're not doing what you need to be doing. But if you're sober, you're clear-minded. You're able to do your duty. And this is what Paul is saying. You need to stay awake and be prepared to meet the Lord. And Jesus said the same thing. Paul's echoing Jesus' teaching. Jesus says to his disciples, Stay awake, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is returning. Matthew 24 42. 
And so the basic application is to make sure that we're prepared to meet the Lord, whether he comes in our lifetime or we're prepared to meet him after this life, after we live, leave this life. We're called to be prepared. I was reading a book about this. The author used an analogy, an illustration that I could really relate to. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I relate to this because he talks about what happens when his wife is away from the home for a few days. On those rare occasions, he says, when my wife goes on a trip, I start to slack a little bit when it comes to the housekeeping. You know, the dishes start to pile up in the sink. Uh, the crumbs start to gather on the counter. Books scattered through the house and magazines on the living room. And then you remember, oh yeah, she's coming tomorrow. <laughs> Better start cleaning up. Time to get out the vacuum, to do the dishes, to do what I can to get it in order as best as I can. And this author said, well, the same thing can happen in our relationship to God. If we lose this lively expectation that we're going to meet him someday, you know, things can start to clutter up. Uh, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin in our life. Habits that draw us away from the Lord. Thoughts that begin to decrease our faith in the Lord. A way of, of life that's really not for the glory or to the glory of the Lord. And so we just have to refocus. We need to be alert and awake and ready to meet him. And then Paul uses an image here that helps us to think more particularly about what it means to be ready in verse 8. He uses this image of being suited up as a soldier. In verse 8 he says, Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. A great triad of Christian virtues. Faith, hope, love. And he says, you have this breastplate of faith, hope and on you already. You have this helmet of salvation. God has put this on you. God gives us this armor, but then we have to appropriate it and we have to walk around in it. We are children of the light. We are to walk around in, in faith, hope, and love. We are to be a witness to faith, hope, and love by the way that we live our life. We're children of the day, he says, not the night. We're not hiding this. We're called to live this out, to live a life of faith, hope, and love. That's part of what it means to be prepared to meet the Lord. It starts, of course, with faith, faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him for our salvation. His death on the cross is a payment for our sin, giving us the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have a right relationship with God. His resurrection, which gives us new and eternal life. Trusting in Christ, faith, that's the first step in preparing to meet him. But then we're called to continue to live a life of faith in him and live this life of faith out in a way that demonstrates to the watching world our love and our hope, faith, hope, and love. You know, there are some people who say this kind of teaching that Christians have really promotes escapism from the world. Because if you're so focused on the future, then what about the present? If you're so focused on meeting the Lord in heaven, then what about the earth? Maybe you've heard the criticism that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. But really, I know that it can be this 
These, these ideas about the end, they can be taught in a way that promotes escapism from the world, but not if you stick with what Jesus is actually saying and Paul is actually teaching here. It doesn't promote escapism because Paul is saying, no, you need to live a certain way, a life of faith, hope, and love that witnesses to the goodness of God and the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You live this life here and now. Take this armor and put it on and walk in it, walk around in it, in the daylight, because this is part of what it means to prepare to meet the Lord again. So a great example of somebody who did that and he was motivated by this hope of meeting the Lord was a, a man named, he was an Englishman, named Lord Shaftesbury. Have you heard of Lord Shaftesbury? He was uh, a 19th century Englishman who worked in Parliament. He began in 1826 in Parliament, and he started a program of social reforms that lasted for almost 60 years. He passed legislation. This was during, of course, the Industrial Revolution, and he was concerned about what was happening to women and to children and the vulnerable in society during this epic change um, called the Industrial Revolution, and we know what was happening then. So, for example, he, he passed legislation that prohibited women and girls to work in the undermined coal mines. He reformed factory labor. He was instrumental in getting the 10-hour Factory Act in, in, enacted, passed. He worked tirelessly on behalf of orphans and and prostitutes and chimney sweeps and girls on the street who were selling flowers, the mentally ill, the crippled, and the lame. And, and again and again, he just worked on these reforms. He was an abolitionist. And what motivated him, he said, his favorite verse was Revelation 22.20, which is, the Lord says, yes, I'm coming soon. Yes, I'm coming soon. And then the answer is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Can you say that? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That was the moving principle of his life that he identified. And at his funeral, tens of thousands of people came out to see his body as it was being carried from his home to Westminster Abbey. They came out in the rain. They stood out in the rain. And they had banners. They were lining the street with signs. And the signs had words from Matthew 25. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. That was his send, his send off. He was doing that as a servant of the master who wanted to be ready to meet his master, who wanted to hear his master say, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't have the position and the prominence that somebody like Lord Shaftesbury had, but we are all servants of the master, the same master. And we're called to live out this life of faith, hope, and love in our homes, in our families, our workplaces, in schools, to use the time that God has given us, the talents, the gifts that he's using us for his glory because we believe that one day we will meet him again. Now, 
Notice that Paul does not want these Christians, and he does not want us to think about meeting the Lord in such a way that causes anxiety or fear or uncertainty about our standing with God. So he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. There is a challenge in this passage. There's exhortation to live a certain way, but then there's comfort. God's not destined you for wrath. If we belong to Christ, we don't have to fear the holy judgment of God because the judgment of God's been taken care of at the cross. He says, Christ died for you, so you don't have to fear the coming wrath of God. It's just a matter of being ready. It's just a matter of staying alert, staying awake, doing what God has called you to do and encouraging one another and building one another up in this hope. Somebody said, when you think about the second coming of Jesus, don't focus so much on the event. The important thing is not the event. The important thing is you're meeting a person, and that person is Jesus, your Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the King of kings, and we want to hear him say, well done good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would help us, help me to live with a greater sense of meeting you again someday, whether after this life or in the midst of this life, in an unexpected way, when you come again in glory as the judge of the living and the dead. Help this to become a motivating principle in our life. Help us to walk around in this armor, the breastplate of love and hope and these virtues that Paul has talked about, faith, hope, and love. Help us to walk around in these things, we pray. For your glory, your sake, we pray. Amen.